Thank you, Hal. And welcome to the National Capital Bible Church for our uh, final Sunday in the year 2017. It seems like it was not that long ago that we were welcoming this year, but uh, today uh, the, the time passes rather quickly, so the 31st comes to us, uh, and of course we welcome them. We're looking forward to 2018. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth in him is not condemned. He that does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of the one and only Son of God. Let's take a few seconds closing our eyes and bowing our heads, we have this opportunity for spiritual preparation. And our spiritual preparation consists of confession of sins. We know that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We also know that uh, our iniquities have separated us from God. And these are really wonderful passages. Every now and then somebody says, well, we only have one passage that talks about confession of sins, which is absolutely not true. It's found throughout the Word of God. But we know that our iniquities separate us from God, and our sins has hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. But we simply need to use 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this allows us the wonderful opportunity to experience the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives as he takes the word of God and turns it into spiritual phenomena for us. Let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful for this year, year 2017. Father, we uh, are grateful for all the many blessings that you've given us. You brought us to this location. This has been our first full year uh, in these spaces, in this location. And we're so thankful for all the, the work that's been accomplished, those who have applied themselves and helped to uh, bring the, the physical location uh, distribution the way it is. We're also thankful for those who serve, Father, in the throughout the church, whether it uh, be in the leadership at the top or uh, working in the Sunday school, vacuuming, working in the kitchen. All of these things uh, are such uh, a tremendous contribution. We're also, Father, thankful that we have uh, the freedom to study the Word of God, to gather here as a body of Christ, as individual members coming together, working together, uh, encouraging each other, supporting each other, so that we might not only grow individually, but grow as a congregation, as as a body of Christ. We pray, Father, as we go about our worship service this morning, that God the Holy Spirit would certainly uh, guide us, uh, that he would superintend our entire meeting, and that from it, Father, we would be edified and encouraged spiritually. And we certainly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all those children rushing to the back, but excitedly nonetheless. There they go. Many of you will recognize the song we just sang, Christian Soldier, and you probably associate it with a certain church, a certain time. Well, that song is associated with this church. You may remember that it was sung by D.C. Williams. What was his last name? D.C. Washington. D.C. Washington. Thank you. See, she remembers. Janet's got a razor-sharp memory. She often thinks that she doesn't. But D.C. Washington sang that song at our commissioning service. 
and therefore it forever is associated with this church. Whoever else may want to try to claim it. Well, our last service of 2017, and we are going to continue a, I guess we have to call it a special, that was begun last week. And what I decided to do is to take perspectives, looking at certain perspectives. We actually could say they are windows, looking through the window of individuals' souls upon the Christmas story, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus. And last week, we observed the perspective of a couple, and that couple's name was Zachariah and Elizabeth. And so we had the perspective, what I have called here, devotion. Probably could use other names, but Zachariah and Elizabeth have a particular perspective on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, of course, are very much on the front part of that perspective. And last week, we spent some time reading and studying in the book of Luke. And that's where we plan to be today. But uh, trying to find my notes, whatever I did with them. But we didn't quite finish last week, and that works very well for us, because where we uh, would like to begin today, where we will resume our study or pick up the study this week, really is dependent upon where we departed last week. And last week, we were uh, working our way through Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the story is admittedly more focused on Zechariah than Elizabeth, but Elizabeth was very much a part of Zechariah's life. As a matter of fact, in the passage that we studied, she's mentioned very early. Why? Because she played not only an important part in Zechariah's life, but an important part in the story, the Christmas story. And we read through Luke, verse 5, Luke 1, verse 5, down through 25, verse 25. And what's important for us to remember is that Elizabeth, in verse 25, it says, well, verse 24 now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. This is Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth. And she hid herself five months. Five months is important to us as we transition to our next story, our next perspective in verse 26, because it says, now in the sixth month. Well, that only makes sense if we understand that we've just spoken about a fifth month. And so this is the sixth month. Now, we didn't have a chance really to finish the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we can really easily finish this by simply turning over to verse 57 in Luke. Luke 1, 57. And after all of the events swirling around Zechariah, we now shift from really a focus on Zechariah to Elizabeth. And one of the reasons we do this is because what had Zechariah requested? Zechariah had requested proof. Proof of 
what Gabriel had promised. And as I was studying this, it always, certain memories return. And one of the memories is that Zechariah asks for proof from an angel. Well, that reminds me of a movie. A movie that I'd seen many years ago, but seen recently as well, called The Bishop's Wife. Now, I don't know if I was to ask how many people have seen the movie The Bishop's Wife. How many of you would recognize that? Now, I don't plan to tell you the story this morning. But it revolves around someone who is serving God in a leadership position, much like Zechariah. And it involves an angel. And the angel identifies himself to the bishop. And what does the bishop say? Prove it. Prove that you're an angel. And, of course, the angel, well, what would you have me do? Well, why don't you pick up the, the uh, a desk here, have it float around the room? And the angel says, well, I'm, I'm not here to do silly tricks. And then the angel, in ways that the bishop doesn't expect, demonstrates who he is very clearly so that the bishop understands. Well, what did Zachariah expect Gabriel to do? Maybe tip the menorah over because he's in the holies and have the flames burn straight down. Maybe pull back the veil and show him the ark. Do something spectacular. But he did something that Zachariah didn't anticipate but was absolutely clearly a demonstration of his authority from God. And that is, he struck him dumb. He couldn't speak. And we'll see in a moment, he probably couldn't hear either. Well, now, you might say, that's not, I mean, it's it's catastrophic to the individual. Well, it would be particularly true for Zechariah because he is the priest that is presiding this week. And he suddenly can't speak. He can't present the blessings. He can't pray. He can do nothing. Probably can't even hear. But God didn't relieve him of his responsibilities. He had to continue to serve that week. But anyhow, when we come to verse 57 in Luke, it says, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to deliver. So we've gone from the fifth month to the ninth month to the time of the delivery. And we have events between these that we want to study. And that's where we'll be today. But let's see what happens here with Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. What did Gabriel tell Zachariah, a son. You're going to have a son. Well, Gabriel's better than a sonogram. It was a son. He was right. Verse 58 says, When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. They previously had not rejoiced with her. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that we believe that Elizabeth hid herself for five months is because she knew her neighbors wouldn't believe her. She was beyond the age of having children. And if she'd have come out and said, I've got the greatest news. I'm pregnant. They would have thought she was a fool. And so she hides until it's absolutely obvious. And then there were probably some who thought she has really been eating a lot of the Christmas candy. So Elizabeth here is no longer disgraced, but she is graced. And it's evident that God has graced her. God has made her the focus of blessing and rejoicing, not scorn and contempt. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. So he's born now the eighth day, circumcision, as according to the law. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. They... 
You know, some of us might say, who in the world do they think they are? Well, this was a community. And the community was very much supportive and involved with each family. As a matter of fact, much of the community was members of the family, extended family. And so this was a custom, a custom of giving the family name to a newborn. And in a way, it was naming the baby after Zachariah. That was a way that they identified that it was Zachariah's. Well, it is Zacharias, but Zacharias had other instructions. He's had specific instructions on how this baby was to be named. So, not so fast. His mother answered and said no. And by the way, this is a strengthened form of the Greek word ouk. No, it's absolutely not. Now, that may have sounded almost like a... uh, a rejection of Zachariah's name for whatever reason. But she says, absolutely not. He shall be called John. And the name John means God has been gracious. A Hebrew name, a Hebrew name that's been given to him. So Elizabeth here contradicts them and says, no, his name is John. God is gracious. Verse 61 says, But they said to her, There's no one among your relatives whose name is John. So they answered, Who? Who do you know by the name of John? Because that was a custom at that time. So they made signs to his father, to Zechariah, what he would have called him. So they're making signs to him. So he can't hear. So he not only can't speak, but he can't hear. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. The people here were certain of the name, but Zechariah and Elizabeth were also certain. They were going to be obedient to God. God had said, Name the child John. And so that's his name. And you'll notice in verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened. And his tongue loosed, his tongue was free, and he spoke praising God. The emphasis here is on Zachariah's ability to speak. Zachariah's expression of faith and obedience ends his silence. You may remember that when Zachariah questioned the veracity, the truthfulness of what the angel had said, that Zachariah said, how am I going to know this? I want proof. Well, the angel said, you're going to be silent until the birth of your son. Why until the birth? Because there's the proof. The child is the proof of the truthfulness of what God had said to Zachariah. He now has the physical evidence. And so God returns his ability to speak. Because he's turned from skeptic to believer, his speech returns, and the first thing he does is praise God. You know, that's a wonderful tribute to Zechariah. Uh, he immediately praises God for what has been done. Verse 65, Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. This became a true defining event in Judea and in the surrounding area. What Elizabeth had told them, what Zechariah had told them, had come true. And by the way, this was a miracle. She was beyond childbearing age, but it was considered to be somewhat natural because it was Zechariah and Elizabeth, a couple, having a child. But everybody recognized this as an act of God. And the fear here is a way that they would recognize God's hand his action in this. 
So now others recognize the supernatural event. And it stirs, that's our word here, it stirs the entire area. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So all of these events, these miraculous events, Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zachariah's loss, ability to speak and hear, and then the return to him, the naming of the child, all of these miraculous events are signs that the Messiah is coming. These are signs that were occurring at that time. And they should have known. Now, our perspective for this morning moves from Zechariah and Elizabeth to the perspective of amazement. I changed this in my notes from the perspective of amazement because that's probably the word we would use, one of the words that we would use with Mary. But in my notes, I also changed this to the perspective of obedience. The perspective of obedience because I think that actually fits Joseph and Mary more closely the perspective of obedience. And now we are in Luke 1.26. So we move back in our chapter right behind the fifth month of Elizabeth. And it's interesting to try to grab the background here for this. And it's, our background is important throughout this story, whether it be Zachariah and Elizabeth or it be Joseph and Mary. And now the focus is on Mary. But we have to have the background here in order for us in most of the story to have an understanding of the significance of what's happening. Verse 26, let's read a few verses into our story here now. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Gabriel now is a player. We've recognized him in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And now, once more, here in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So we have all of the players. Don't have all the names yet, but we have the players. The virgin's name was Mary. There it is. And having come, having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. And we could probably just eliminate the word highly there, but she is highly favored. But the word favored is there. Rejoice, greeting, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. And then, I believe, the the majority of manuscripts here, the majority text, is correct by adding, Blessed are you among women. And that will be in the New King James, uh, not in your uh, New American Standard Bibles or the NIV. Verse 29. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Iesus. Our translation here is a Latin one, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, this is again an absolutely remarkable moment in time. Probably... Very few can approach it. 
This is the announcement of the coming of the Messiah. And it's such a special message that God's special messenger, Gabriel, is sent to deliver it. The sixth month here was not the sixth month of the year. Some might think that if they just break right into the passage. But it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so what we have is the fact that Mary departed, and or excuse me, Mary is in Nazareth and Elizabeth is in Judah, the land of Judah. But we have two women that are playing very prominently here in the story of Jesus' birth. And for those who think that the Bible really gives a short shrift, sort of a Roman Catholic phrase, to women, it's not true. Women play. Women are mentioned throughout the Word of God, and they play extraordinary roles. They're very important, and we can learn much from them and from their experiences. But using the timing of the pregnancy to date the event indicates the importance of the pregnancy. This pregnancy is also important, and not only was this one important, but Elizabeth's was. The timing, not so much, but the pregnancies themselves. And I think that God is trying to juxtapose these two pregnancies so we see the relationship between them. And there's going to be not only a relationship between Elizabeth and Mary, but between the sons. Two pregnancies within six months of each other are going to dramatically change history. Elizabeth had just recently emerged from hiding and an angelic messenger was about ready to make another divine announcement. Notice that we're told that God the Father sends the messenger. It's important for us to realize that God is in control of these events. God's involved in the details of human history. These events are according are occurring according to a divine timetable. And I honestly believe that the same kind of concern, attention, and devotion is given to our lives, the details in our lives. We just don't have the angel Gabriel announcing them to us. But God cares and God's involved. Gabriel, who had identified himself to Zechariah, now appears in Galilee. Not down in and around Jerusalem, but in Galilee. Nazareth is a very small village at this time. There are some estimates. We don't know exactly what the population was, but the, uh, the estimates by scholars, theologians, say it could have been around 100. Now, I thought that I grew up in a small town or near a small town. I grew up on a farm, really, for the first, until I was a teenager, and then we moved to the small town of Morning Sun. Well, Morning Sun, I think, was near a thousand. So, when some, and I considered that to be a small town. We didn't even have a stoplight. Stop signs, but no stoplight. They may not have had any stop signs in Nazareth. Maybe a hundred inhabitants. The town was out of the way, 15 miles west of the southern part of the Lake of Galilee, also the Lake of Tiberias, or the city of Tiberias. It really is in the backwater of Israel. This is why Nathaniel, when he hears that the Messiah has come from Nazareth, he said, Does anything good ever come out of Nazareth? That's exactly where the Lord is going to be born. Well, not born, conceived. Mary didn't need to go to the big city. 
Mary didn't need to go to the big city to get her big break in life. God came to her. And very often that's exactly what we think. We've got to do something to make something of ourselves or make something of our lives. As if God doesn't have a plan and if God, as if God can't do something with our lives where we are. Patience is very often the virtue. How many people have pressed the envelope of their life only to be frustrated, dissatisfied, facing problems that they really, really wish they didn't have? When maybe God wanted them to just wait. Wait on Him. I don't know what kind of dreams Mary had. And we're going to see Joseph as well. I don't know what kind of dreams Mary had. But I guarantee you, this is well beyond any dream she could have possibly imagined. An angel appearing to her. An angel hasn't appeared to anybody for 400 years. More than likely. 400 years of silence. Broken, except to Zechariah. Excuse me, six months ago. Now, here we are. Mary. Who would have guessed it? Verse 27 says, He appears to a virgin. And this, by the way, is our Greek word, Parthenos. And it can mean maiden, but it's used of an unmarried girl. And therefore, it is understood as it's used to be a virgin. Unmarried. Betrothed, great word, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That's tacked on for us. Because who's Joseph? Joseph's another nobody in this backwater town of Nazareth. A hundred people. Why is he there? He's patient, and God has a plan for his life. And his life is developing exactly the way it was supposed to develop, according to God's plan. The virgin's name was Mary. Interesting, lovely name. I've already told you that it's a special name to me. My mother's name was Mary. Her name was also Elizabeth. Mary Elizabeth. I'm deeply invested in these stories. The name Mary comes from Maria and Miriam. And we know that Miriam has the name has the sense of bitterness. But we're going to see in Mary that there's no bitterness. None. So she is a young girl of marriageable age. Now for us today, marriageable age is much different than it was then. Marriageable age at that point was a girl who was now able to have children and so she's young it says that she's betrothed to a man and the word here for man is on air so it's not just a man we sometimes see the word on air to mean a nobleman but it's also expressed as husband she's betrothed to her husband and we're going to learn more about the betrothal as we go forward. But his name is Joseph. A betrothal here is really the blending. The blending of being pledged, engaged, and even secluded. I did a little reading in some of the Manners and Customs books of biblical times and it's if you have the chance uh, you should do that if you've got 
the books or go to the library and find one and read about uh, how the betrothal uh, marriage and marriage is described. It's very interesting. In other words, they were essentially wed. They really were. They were essentially wed. Joseph and Mary have a written and legally binding relationship that would have been witnessed by their neighbors in a public ceremony. Joseph would have given a gift to Mary's father and taken an oath. And the oath, while we're not certain, would may have been something similar to this. By this, addressing Mary, you are set apart for me according to the laws of Moses and Israel. And by saying that, he is committing himself. He is devoting himself to Mary. And she is now committed and devoted to him. The only way to break the vow was through a formal divorce. And it would be formal. It would have to be a formal divorce. Which were very uncommon. A divorce was only only granted for unfaithfulness. Mary was young again probably in her earlier mid-teens. And theologians, the spectrum on this is all over the board. There are those who would say she may have been a mid-teen. Some would say a little bit older teen. And there are some that would say she may have just barely been a teen. Maybe. Because a betrothal could occur as early as 11 or 12 years old. And they usually lasted about 12 months. And there was a reason for the wait, for the the, uh, the 12-month wait. But we're not told Mary's age, and therefore, you know, s- speculating is of little value. But at the time, a girl was generally betrothed when she reached childbearing age. And some might say, well, this is cruel. But it actually was considered to be beneficial and protective of the girl because it immediately gave her a secure future. It also guaranteed a family and children. And the earlier, then the more children that could be born. And it also provided security for her, personal future and security. It was sealed. It was done. And therefore, it was seen as really protection and concern for her. Young men waited to marry until they were capable of supporting a wife and therefore therefore were usually several years older and established in a trade. And we studied Joseph. We'll talk about Joseph's age and where he may have been uh, in this. But we now see this couple. They are betrothed, a young girl. She now has a secure future. She has a husband who is probably established, known in the community, approved by the father and mother so that he was, in fact, a uh, an honorable Individual, He would have been required to give a dowry to the father, and the father holds the dowry for the daughter until the marriage. Uh, so, And the dowry, by the way, was a way uh, of ensuring uh, support for the girl should something happen to her husband. She has her dowry. And, it's, and we learn that Joseph was a carpenter. And the word carpenter, where we find it in Matthew 13:55, is probably better understood as a craftsman. In those days, this meant much more than just a woodworker. He was a stonemason. He was a bricklayer. He was a woodworker. He probably was an all-around handyman. And in the small village of Nazareth, he would need to be versatile. But we really believe that he worked in a larger growing city further north and to the east of them, where a Roman city was being built. And he probably 
walked there every day and used his skills there as a mason. Joseph and Mary were not living together. A betrothal was generally 12 months. And Joseph would be working on their home. And she would be contemplating and also learning the skills of a wife so that the the couple would be able to have a successful and prosperous marriage. She would also be avoiding social gatherings to avoid her purity. What's interesting in reading the... Uh, the customs and manners books of that time is that once a girl was betrothed she really became secluded and the reason for that is that it was a way of guaranteeing her purity for marriage so we have the question here why did God choose a betrothed woman Why someone who was already in this relationship? Why not one that was not betrothed to spare both Mary and Joseph the problem and anxiety that probably resulted from her surprise pregnancy? I mean, for her, she has a husband. He has a wife. They haven't wed, but they are legally bound. And for her to become pregnant prior to the wedding is a serious problem. God's son would need an earthly father. And Mary would need a husband. Joseph was the man God chose because of his loyalty to Mary, his royal roots, and his obedience to God. He's chosen this betrothed couple because Mary is going to need the kind of support that only a husband's going to be able to give her. And what we're going to see in Joseph is an absolutely remarkable man. And I'm going to say it a couple times before we get to Joseph. And then I'm going to say it a couple times with Joseph. Joseph. Who is Joseph? Did he have dreams? Did he have aspirations? How is Joseph's life changed by this? The remarkable thing that we see in Joseph is that he was obedient to God and he loved his wife Mary sacrificially. Joseph. God knows what he's doing. The opening verses of Matthew establishes Jesus' royal line and Joseph's in the royal line. Joseph is there. God had prepared the family for more than a millennium. For more than a millennium. And the time was perfect for him to dispatch Gabriel to Mary. God's timing is always perfect. And Gabriel... Shows up right on time. Mary's name comes from the Hebrew name Maria or Miriam. Moses' older sister was Miriam. And it means bitter. However, there's never any trace of bitterness in her words or actions. Just the opposite. Mary is filled with grace and with love. Mary, coming from a small village, was probably unremarkable. You know, we always see the pictures of Mary with a halo over her head. Generally, a very beautiful, attractive girl. We have no idea how she appeared. No reason to believe that she wasn't attractive. 
But we don't know that. And she probably was, for the most part, as I said, unremarkable. She would have been without formal education and she would have been poor. The life offered by Joseph would be difficult and common. God did not choose Mary because she was unique. Mary was unique because God chose her. And I think the same can be said for us. Yes, we all are unique because no two humans are exactly the same. But God sees all human beings as special. God sees all human beings as special, providing common grace to all of us. He provides the same opportunity to everyone for salvation. At the moment of salvation, God imputes to each one of us eternal life. The righteousness of Christ. We're all placed into union with Christ. We have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. We're given a spiritual gift and many, many more spiritual assets, but they're given to all of us. Different spiritual gifts, but each spiritual gift is important, just as important as any other spiritual gift. We are unique because of what God does for us. God sees us as special and God treats us as being special. We have spiritual potential for remarkable achievements, but only in the power of God the Holy Spirit do our achievements truly become remarkable, having spiritual value and significance. And that's what's happening in Mary's life. We read this, and of course, in Roman Catholicism, we immediately make her some sort of a immediate spiritual spiritually significant individual who can bestow grace on others and the Bible never says that she is similar to Elizabeth she's similar to any other Jewish woman of the time but she was we're going to see obedient and she was faithful to God she was, as we would say, we use the term devout. And God now is going to use that faithfulness, this loyalty to him, in a very special way. God can do the same thing with us. And he has done the same thing with us. We're special. Mary, through the rest of the Bible, through the rest of the text, is seen as Jesus' mother. We might say a normal mother with normal concerns, normal devotion. We really do not see much of the parental interaction here. And I think there's a reason for that. Jesus had reasonably normal parents. But they did remarkable things because they accepted and acted on the opportunities that God gave them. Verse 28 says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Once more, God draws the in, draw, draws, removes that invisible screen, curtain between the angelic and the human world. And once more, Gabriel is sent with a message and permission to appear to a specific human being called Mary. And I always loved this when we are given the opportunity to see the angelic world in action. And we see such a microscopic part of it. Again, we have absolutely no idea what's happening around us until God draws that curtain just a little bit for us to see. And there's Gabriel. 
one of these flames of fire that has been sent. And Gabriel is often identified as the one sent. Gabriel introduces himself to Mary with a normal Greek term greeting. And very likely, greeting. Greetings could very easily be the translation here. And I'm sure it was tended to comfort Mary. We're not told that Gabriel appears as a as a giant, as a monstrosity. We're not told that he appears with wings. We're not told that there is this bright and shining, blinding light. He just appears and says greetings to her. Where no one had previously been in the next second. He's just there. Which takes me back to the bishop's wife when the angel appears in that movie. So I think that Gabriel appeared to her as an ordinary man. He was an ordinary man with an extraordinary message. And Mary was going to listen to this message. And when he was done, her life, well, it's an understatement to say that it was turned upside down. She's going from 12 or 13-year-old girl to a cog in God's plan. Someone whose name is going to be recognized throughout all eternity. And to me, that those things are significant. Mary. Simple name. But who was she? She became something very significant in God's plan. Mary soon realizes that this is no ordinary man, human. We aren't told what Mary is doing, but she was probably attending to her daily chores. And this is how God's plan normally unfolds in our lives as well. You know, I, I think in all of our lives, and I don't want to make this personal testimony, but I think in all of our lives, we dream. We dream about certain things happening. What we might be doing. We're on the stage, or we're in front of people, or we become known, renowned. We're able to do this or do that. And we probably would love it if trumpets would sound, if lights would flash when God has something special for us so that we take note of it. But that's not what happens. God's plan unfolds in our lives when we are probably doing some of the most mundane things, some of the most unexpected. We have opportunities to witness when we are doing some of the most ordinary things, or the time to pray, or the time to read our Bibles, whatever it is, the opportunity to serve. I don't think Mary was at the synagogue. I don't think that she was at that particular time, you know, making a garment that she was planning to present to the priests. She may have been grinding corn. She may have been grinding grain. She may have been drawing water. We're not told what we, she was doing. Why? Because that's not important. It was just part of her daily life. At any given moment in our lives, our lives can change simply by the opportunity that God gives us. This event was an extraordinary surprise to Mary. It wasn't a surprise to God. God wasn't surprised. God didn't just suddenly say, hmm, this looks like a good opportunity. 
And when God provides opportunities to us, we sometimes, while we might be surprised, have to realize that this is God's perfect timing. Gabriel here addresses Mary as favored one or one who is favored. And the passive voice means that she's the recipient of God's grace. She is not now going to be the one who blesses and graces everyone else. I mean, that can happen. But this is not the transformation of her to sainthood. Blesses is omitted from some manuscripts here, but I think it, sh- it belongs. It's part of the Byzantine manuscripts, uh, the majority text, and I think that that um, is credible. Mary is a godly woman, but what is about to happen is a distinct blessing for her. Yes, she was a virgin, but not perfect, not without sin. For Jesus to be fully the Son of Man, his mother had to be fully human. And then it says, the Lord is with you. And this is an emphatic statement. Gabriel was reassuring her that she was certainly the recipient of God's presence, his protection, and his provision. And we have the same assurance. God is with us as well. But how often we forget or ignore it. See, Gabriel is saying to Mary, you have this special presence, provision and protection. Well, that made her special, but... She really had that protection always. God was watching her. And God does the same thing for us. We have the same assurance. We have the ever-present attention of the creator of the universe. The question is, do we live like it? And I would dare say that we often forget. We're negligent. God had a plan for Mary, and Mary is going to submit to that plan. This plan was not going to be all sunshine and lollipops. Great upbeat song. But she acquiesces without hesitation. She doesn't hesitate. She wonders how it's going to be possible. And God has a plan for our lives just as he did for Mary. And in this way, we are favored ones also. We are favored ones. Now, God's plan for us is much different. But we are the recipient of God's unmerited grace. And the question is, what do we do with it? And the answer, what do we do with it, depends on our willingness to serve. Our willingness to say, Yes. God gives us opportunities. We just need to be willing. Willing to serve. All right. Well, we've progressed here to verse 29. And we'll come back to beginning our next service. Pick up where we left off. And I really wanted to get to Joseph today. But Joseph may need to wait and wonder. Let's bow in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for this remarkable story that you have revealed to us. This conversation between Gabriel and Mary. And we're thankful for what it reveals to us about you, your plan, and about Mary, who was simply obedient. We pray, Father, that we would have the same attitude, the same desire, and the same wonder of what you're doing in our lives. And sometimes we wonder how. And we may not completely understand, but we need to believe. We need to trust 
that you, in fact, are acting in our lives, providing for us, giving us opportunities. We simply need to be on red alert for those opportunities. And we're thankful, Father, that you have provided for us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And that he becomes our Savior, personal Savior, simply by believing in his finished work on the cross. And we are so thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. We'll be back at 11 o'clock.